I invite you this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And this morning, our focus will be on verses 19 through 24. Romans 9, 19 through 24. Though I will let you know in advance that we probably won't get that far. I was thinking about the fact that many of the books, uh, commentaries that I've read on Romans, especially the ones that are more like homiletical type commentaries where maybe it's a collection of sermons from uh, a preacher, Sunday school lessons that I've read um, at different times, especially in Romans chapter 9, I've noticed that a lot of those sermons and a lot of those Sunday school lessons, they like to quickly run over Romans 9. And a lot of those treatments are relatively brief and uh, provide really just kind of an overview. And I think sometimes, though, it leaves people kind of fuzzy in terms of understanding the passage and what it's what Paul's really trying to teach us. And so what I've done is uh, I'm not racing through Romans 9. I'd rather us slow down, even if that means only a verse or two, because I think it's important to understand what he's saying instead of just, you know, kind of getting a, a quick run through and maybe catching a few glimpses along the way and thinking that we have an idea of what he's talking about. I think it's important to slow down at times, and especially when you're dealing with an argument point by point where he's making a very tight case for the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. I think it's important to understand what exactly Paul is saying. And so I'd rather slow down than speed up, and I hope that's okay with you all. But but we're going to be looking this morning at verses 19 through 24, probably most of it in 19 through 21. But let's read this passage, Romans 9, verse 19. The Apostle Paul says, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we come before your word today. We desire to know it. We desire to understand it. We want to know it, Lord, because it reveals you. It reveals your character, your attributes. It helps us to see more of your ways, your purposes in the world. It helps us to come to a greater comprehension of your mercy and grace towards sinners. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand and that we would be moved by these words and that 
we would put into practice the things that we learn and that it might lead us to a greater worship of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have we misunderstood Paul? Have we misunderstood Paul's argument? Going back to Romans chapter 9, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, It is not as though God's word had failed. Why does he say that? He says that because there are many Israelites who have not believed in the gospel. He is personally concerned for them. He's moved to compassion and tears for them. But he's also concerned about the faithfulness of God. If God has chosen Israel and if he has uh, lavished his blessings on them, the covenants and the promises, the patriarchs, the law of God, if he's lavished his blessings on them, then has God's word failed because many Israelites are not believing? And Paul's strong answer to that is no. God's word has not failed. That's his main premise, his main thesis statement in this whole chapter, is God's word has not failed. Now, his supporting point, his minor premise, if you will, that establishes the faithfulness of God is also found in verse number six. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So God's word has not failed because here's God's plan. Here's his purpose. There is an Israel within Israel. There is a broad, physical, national Israel. There is a spiritual Israel within that, that God has showed mercy and compassion to. And then he establishes that by way of examples from the Old Testament, that there is an Israel within Israel. His first example is Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was chosen, Ishmael was not. Why? It's not because of their Abrahamic fatherhood. They can both claim Abraham as their father. So you can't just claim Abraham's my father and that mean that you're one of God's chosen uh, ones with the Israel within Israel who will receive the salvation and mercy of God. So you can't just claim the fact that Abraham's your father. Because Ishmael had a father named Abraham, but he was not chosen. Isaac was. And then he gives another example from the Old Testament in Jacob and Esau. And here he has the advantage of using two men born in almost exactly the same condition, same situation, same father, same mother, born at the same time from the same womb. And yet scripture says God chose the younger over the older. Well, why? What's the basis of that choice? Is it who their, who their parents were? No, you can't make that argument. They had the same father, Isaac. They had the same grandfather, Abraham. And in the case of Jacob and Esau, which is different from the case of Isaac and Ishmael, they also had the same mother. So same father, same mother, two twins born in the, from the same womb in the same pregnancy, and yet God says the younger will be over the older. Well, maybe it was because one of them was better than the other. He says, no, God made this choice before they were even born. What about what God would foresee in their character? And, and Paul says, no, it's not on the basis of works at all. It's on the basis of the one who calls. 
what about, what about faith? God foresaw faith in them. No, it's on the basis of the one who calls. It's God's call that is primary here. And so what's, what's the principle? What's the foundation then? What's, what's the rationale for which God makes this choice? And the answer is, is it is nothing in man. It is nothing in humans at all. Not works, not faith, not, not character, not birth, not parentage, not, not any of this. And he gives us the answer in verse 11, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. So what's the principle? The principle is God's electing purpose. In other words, you're saying that God chooses out of his own choice. And Paul would say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Now, does this have to do with salvation? Are we talking about individuals and their, their eternal destinies here? We've already talked about that as well. That yes, I believe in this context, Paul is talking about salvation. In the Old Testament, we do have the case where, where God's choice did have an impact in terms of the history of nations and peoples. So his choice of Isaac over Ishmael separated two peoples. His choice of Jacob over Esau separated two peoples. So yes, it does have those implications in the Old Testament, but they also have eternal salvation implications. Because Isaac was chosen and Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen and Esau was not. The Israelite people, Moses, they were chosen. Pharaoh was not. So, and also in the context of Romans 9, and really Romans 9 through 11, Paul's overriding concern is the salvation of Israel. That's why he grieves in verse 3. I wish I could become a curse myself for the sake of my own people. Here at the end of our passage that we just read this morning in verse number uh, 24, shows that we're clearly talking about salvation. Because in verse 24 it says, Even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. This shows conclusively that he's not talking about peoples and nations. Because he's talking about calling a people out of the Jews and calling a people out of the Gentiles and forming a spiritual people called the church out of them. So he's talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal destinies here. Well, have we misunderstood, Paul? Paul, have we misunderstood you? Are you really saying that God chooses unconditionally by election people to be saved? If we were wrong in that understanding, if we were wrong in coming to that conclusion, the perfect opportunity for Paul to correct that misunderstanding would be at verse 14 that we looked at last week. Because the, the question is asked by a, by a potential objector, is God unjust then? Doesn't that make God unfair? Doesn't that make God unjust? If, if it's not found in anything in us, if it's totally based in God and His sovereignty, doesn't that make God unfair? Unjust. How can God do that? Doesn't God have to give people what they deserve based on what they've done? 
And if we were wrong in understanding Paul, that would have been the perfect opportunity for Paul to say, no, 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 don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What, I, what I'm really saying is God's choice of people is really based on their choice of him. So they believe, they trust him, they choose him, and God's choice of them is really based on their choice of him. That's what I'm saying. He doesn't do that, does he? In fact, he doubles down on the sovereignty of God in verses 14 through 18. So he doesn't say, no, you've misunderstood me. In fact, let me tell you this about God. And he reveals an essential attribute of God, and he draws from Exodus 33, the moment in which God reveals his name, his identity, his glory to Moses on the mountain. And what God says is, this is who I am. He declares his name, Yahweh, the Lord, is a God who shows compassion on whom he shows compassion and shows mercy on whom he shows mercy. So if there was a point in Paul's argument where he could say, no, no, I'm going to pull back a little bit because I think you're going too far in, in assuming that, this, that I'm talking about full sovereignty of God and the electing choice is fully on God's side, I'm going to pull back a little bit from that because I think you're misunderstanding. And Paul says he doesn't do that at all. He goes deeper into God's right as creator based on who he is. This is a fundamental aspect of his character, to be God, to be sovereign. And even then, even on top of that, he says, it's not only within the right of God to have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, it's also within the right of God to harden whom he wants to harden. For the display of his own power and glory. Then we get to verse 19. And again, if we were off track in what Paul was saying here, if we were off track and, and thinking, Paul, what, you, no, you can't possibly mean that God is this sovereign. You can't possibly mean that. And then this would be the perfect opportunity when the objection comes up in verse number 19. Why does God then still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? That objection, that question comes out of the implications of what Paul has been saying about the sovereignty of God. In other words, this question could only arise if it is understood that Paul is talking about a very strong sovereignty of God. So, Paul, if, if you're talking about this kind of a sovereignty of God, then how can we be blamed? If God's will, if God's sovereign will is that strong, as he says, who can resist his will? If God's sovereign will is that strong to show compassion, mercy to whom he wants to show mercy and compassion and to harden whom he wants to harden, then why? Then really it's not up to us then, is it, Paul? It's really not on us at all if this is all about God and his sovereignty. It's not on us. It's not our choice. Therefore, why does God still blame us? This would be the perfect opportunity for Paul to say, no, no, I think, I think you have misunderstood me. Because God chooses on the basis of what you choose. 
God hardens because you've already hardened yourself. And so God's hardening of a person is really just an affirmation of what they've already chosen to do in hardening themselves. And God's compassion on somebody is really just his response to someone seeking compassion from God through repentance or through faith. And so this would be the perfect opportunity for Paul to pull back just a little bit and say, no, I think you've misunderstood me. Again, he does not do that. He goes deeper. He goes deeper. And here is his first point. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And who are we? We are the creatures. God is the creator. That's where he goes next. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? In other words, Paul doesn't pull back from his argument about election, the sovereignty of God. He moves forward and he puts the onus, he puts the weight on the objector, basically saying, your objection is rooted out of a, a desire to prove God wrong. Your objection is rooted in a desire to quarrel with God. Your objection is coming from a place of wanting to take from God what rightfully belongs to him. And Paul says, no, I just want to remind you who you are. Who we all are. We are all creatures. And God is the creator. And throughout scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, there is what theologians call a, a fundamental creator creature distinction. Creator creature distinction. In other words, the idea of a creator creature distinction is that there is a gap. There is an inseparable gap between the creator and the creation. A gap that is uncrossable. A gap that is unfathomable. A gap that is infinite. And so what the scriptures want us to understand is that it's not as if God is a higher version of us or we are a, a minute version of God. We're not even talking about the same plane here is what the, is what the Bible teaches. God is wholly other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is wholly, completely other. Set apart, distinct, from his creation. And that makes God holy. H-O-L-Y. He is holy, set apart, distinct from his creation. And so we as creatures will never be God. We will never be God. Even in glory. Even when we are resurrected. Even when we go to be with God in eternity we will certainly know more than we know now. We will certainly be more righteous, perfectly righteous than we are now, but we will never, ever be God. We will never be infinite in knowledge. We will never be infinite in wisdom. We'll never be infinite in power. We'll never be infinite in sovereignty. We'll never be infinite in God's attributes. Only God is infinite in those things. 
There's a fundamental distinction between the creator and the creation. And so one, one commentator puts it this way. For man to advise God about how he ought to act is as out of place as for a statue to advise a sculptor how to chisel. The presumption that a man's sense of values is ultimate and can prevail against God's sense of values is as ludicrous to Paul as a ranting figurine. And we've talked about this before, that, that when we start complaining to God about his fairness or about his justice, that assumes that we can place ourselves on the judgment seat to judge God. And that completely has it backwards, doesn't it? God is the judge. We can't say, God, that's not fair. God, that's not just. Who is the definition of justice if not God? So we can't, as the creature, be in judgment of the creator. It's completely backwards. So Paul says, remember who you are. We're the creature. God is the creator. Secondly, because we are the creature, God is the creator. He says, the creature has no right to talk back to or question the creator. Essentially, remember your place. So remember who you are, then remember your place in who you are. You don't have a right to talk back to God. And I think that's a great translation. Because sometimes when we think of talking back, it's, it's in kind of a negative context, isn't it? Like maybe a, a child to a parent. Hey, don't talk back to me, right? That's that sense of talking back is, is kind of a disrespect, it's a disrespect. It is, is a, it's a questioning of authority. It is a wanting to do things differently their own way. And they're, they're talking back. They're trying to assert their will over yours. And the authority has to say, don't, don't talk back to me. In other words, remember my place and remember your place. And that's what Paul is reminding us of here in our relationship to God. And what Paul is not doing here, Paul is not saying that somebody can't have a humble inquiry or a humble investigation into who God is or, or in God's ways. No, Paul is inviting the study of God for us to think about and to wonder about who God is and why he does the things that he does. What Paul is reacting against is kind of a stubborn, uh, rebellious, skeptical, judgmental questioning of God and his ways. Don't talk back to God. Don't respond to God in this indignant way. One commentator says this, Paul's emphatic at the beginning of verse 20, his, who are you human being? Literally, oh man. Oh man, who are you? It's emphatic. And his also at the end, to God, at the end of verse 20, or at the end of the first part of verse 20, they assign to the objector his proper place. As a mere man, you have no right to accuse God of unrighteousness. No right. Paul has no objection when a person seeks to understand as much of God's dealings as possible, but he objects strenuously when a person criticizes and rejects the truth which he discovers. You can't talk back to God. So remember who you are. 
It's not your place to talk back to God. Thirdly, Paul teaches us in this passage that the creator has the right as creator to make what he wants to with what he creates. That's essentially the point of verse 21 is God as creator has the right to do what he wants to do with what he makes. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? This question is drawn from the Old Testament. And Isaiah 45, the passage that I read earlier, is one such place where this question is asked, can the, can the pot say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Can the clay say back to the potter, what are you doing? Isaiah 45, Isaiah 29, Jeremiah 18, there are several passages in the prophets that ask this kind of a question. And it's always with the understanding that no, you can't. The, the clay has no right to say back to the creator, hey, what are you doing with me? You can't do that. To, for a human being to talk back to God and say, you can't do that, is as ludicrous as a lump of clay saying back to the potter, you can't make me into that kind of a pot. Just can't do it. And so he uses the example from real life of a potter who takes, he takes clay and the potter makes the clay. He takes the ingredients and he puts the right amount, right ratios together, right moisture, right right density, and he makes that clay. And from the same lump of clay, he may be able to make several different vessels out of it. He may be able to make just your everyday common bowl that you use for meals day in, day out. But from that same lump of clay, he may be able to fashion it into something a little bit more artistic, something that he invests a little bit more time into, something that maybe when he's done, he paints and, and he, he designs. And this is a special pot, one that is maybe you only bring out on special occasions. It's like you have your everyday dinnerware and then you have your china, right? And Paul is saying, God, as the potter, has the right to do with his clay as he wishes. Because where does the clay come from? the creator. He made everything, didn't he? He made everything that is. He made the world. He made all people. Psalm 24, one says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and everyone in it. It's God's. So the creator has the right to make what he wants to, to make. And fourthly, I'm going to conclude with this point. He gets into this more in verses 22 through 24, but I want to draw this point into it as we close our time together this morning. And that is, as God, the creator, does what he wants to do with what he makes, he is glorified in that. He is glorified in that. This concept of glory, of God, the sovereign Lord, God, the sovereign creator, Receiving glory. That is at the heart of everything that Paul is saying in this passage. That's at the heart of it. That's why in verse 17, when he quotes from the Old Testament regarding Pharaoh, he quotes this portion that says, 
that God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose so that I might display my power in you and that I might make my name be proclaimed in all the earth. That's the glory of God, isn't it? That's why God did what he did with Pharaoh. And then in this passage that we'll spend a little bit more time on next week, God is saying the same things about these pots of common use and pots of special use. Those that are chosen for salvation, those who will ultimately face destruction, all of it comes back to the glory of God. That's why in verse number 23, he says, those whom he has prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And in verse 23, he says, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known? So God is God. We are not. We can't talk back to God because God is God and we are not. God can do what he wants to do because he's the creator. And in everything that God does as creator, he does it for his own glory and honor. Everything. It is ultimately for his praise and the fame of his name. And that's why we are here. That's why we are here. Ephesians 1 tells us, and even this passage in Romans 9 tells us, we are here, we the church, we the body of Christ, we the redeemed, we are here for the praise of his glorious grace. We are here to bring honor and praise to God. This idea of God's people bringing honor and glory to God is scattered throughout all the Bible. Matthew 5, 16, let your good works shine before others so that they may see those good works and what? Glorify your father who is in heaven. We are here for the glory of God. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive praise and honor and glory, for you have created all things, and by your will and for your pleasure, they are created. We exist for the glory of God, and everything that he does is for his own glory. So may we worship him and honor him, and may we live our lives to the praise of his glory. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we desire to know you. We desire to worship you. We desire to humble ourselves before you as your children. And Lord, even as we think about and we wrestle with ideas and and, uh, thoughts and truths that are hard for us to comprehend, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a humility to, to bow before your sovereign rule to acknowledge, Lord, that you are the creator and we are the creatures that you have made for your own purposes and for your own glory. Help us to humbly approach your word, to let it teach us and mold us. God, for those of us who are your children, your people that you have graciously and mercifully redeemed, we desire to be your light in this world. 
So that, as Isaiah says, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, that your name will be glorified in all the earth. May we be your vessels, your pots of clay that give honor to our maker. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.